Well, this morning we're blessed to have Stephen Dewey, our Minister of Children and Student Ministries, come to open the Word of God to you. So, Stephen. Good morning. It's great to be here again this morning, and it's a privilege. Um, I just want to take a moment to pray. I tremble before you coming and opening this passage because of the content, and I just want to commission it in prayer one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, your living and abiding word. And as we look at your son today, we pray that it would be useful to our hearts and minds and that it would encourage us to live for him. Bless the preaching, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, there are many beautiful and glorious views that we can partake in, that we can see in the world around us. And one that comes to mind immediately for me is the view from the top of Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. I've had the privilege of doing that 11-hour hike to the top and back. And from the top of Half Dome, you get a 360-degree view of pure beauty. Yosemite National Park lays out before you. El Capitan's out in the front. There's multiple hills and cliffs all over. You've got the beautiful greens and the blues of the lake and the grays of the cliffs. And it's such an incredible view. You're 2,500 feet up on the edge of the cliff, and the valley floor itself is another couple thousand feet below, 4,800 feet to, uh, to the very bottom. There's very little that compares to this view. And like I said, it takes 11 hours to get up there. It's a full-day hike of weaving back and forth to gradually make it to the top. But there is another way up. You can climb it. That's right, you can climb 2,500 feet straight up the face of Half Dome. Most people who do it are very experienced. Well, they're all very experienced, actually. And most people who do it take about two days to make the ascent, stopping halfway up to sleep on a ledge. But not for one, Alex Honnold. A rock climber from childhood, Alex loves daring extremes. He's been called the Michael Jordan of rock climbing. One time early in his career... While climbing an easy section of a massive climb, he unclipped from his ropes and kept climbing. He was 2,000 feet up. The exhilaration of the experience thrilled him, and thus he began what is known as the most dangerous sport of free soloing, where a climber does an entire climb without ropes or harness. Well, back in 2008, Alex set out to free solo Half Dome. His goal was to climb all 2,500 feet of it without ropes. It was the quick and dangerous route to the top. Throwing caution to the wind and just going for it, he was going to reach this beautiful view with no ropes or harness to slow him down. So Alex began his climb. No ropes, no harness, left him in his van. He was going to make it to the top unless it killed him. You get to understand something about a free soloing. Once you start to free solo, you cannot stop because going down is, even, is impossible, really. Going down is even harder than going up. And so once you begin, there is literally no turning back. And for Alex, everything was going fine, if you can imagine it. Everything was going fine for about two-thirds of his climb on the way up. But then he came to this part of the climb where there was about a 10-inch uh, jutty or, or ledge that stuck out from the rock. And at this point, there were no handholds. He had to traverse about 30 feet along this 10-foot ledge with no handholds to get to a place where he could then continue going up. And the best way to do it, really the only way to do it, is to put your back against the mountain, your feet on the ledge, and just step sideways, slowly. It was at this point 
that Alex had a panic attack. He was no longer committed. He was now terrified, and he was paralyzed. It was just Alex and the beautiful view of Yosemite and the strong prospect of an 11.2-second fall and certain death. But after a few minutes, as Alex described it, something just clicked, and he was committed again to finishing his climb. He maneuvered off the ledge and soon made it all the way to the top alive. And not only did Alex make it, he did it in three hours. The entire ascent in three hours with no harness, no ropes, no safety, just pure guts and muscle. His pure determination drove him to reach the top. He wanted the full half-dome experience, and boy, did he get it. Well, there are not many views as dangerous as Alex Honnold's that day on half-dome, but I can think of one, and that is viewing God. To view God is an extremely dangerous thing. Exodus 33.20 says that if anyone sees God, he will die. We cannot see his face, for we will die, God told Moses. God does not reveal himself to people because we are wicked, and yet he is perfect and without sin. And yet there have been in history rare times where God has revealed himself to people. Isaiah, for instance, saw God on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, and he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Ezekiel, another prophet of God, also saw his glory, and he fell on his face in terror. He was overwhelmed with God's majesty and glory. There have been very few who have ever seen God and lived to tell the story. But in a sense, that's exactly what we are going to do today. The ascended Jesus, who died, was raised, and is now seated at God's right hand on his throne, revealed himself to John the Apostle. John saw the full majesty of God face to face in his glorified son. And it was a terrifying sight, one that he could barely behold. And yet this was a sight that John needed to behold. He needed to see the character of God as it was revealed in the glorified body of his son. And we need to see it today too. We need to see this view of Jesus. We commonly, so commonly have a soft view of Jesus Christ. Or, or, or maybe only the view of him as the compassionate, tender one, healing the sick and loving the children. And he does do all those things. He is loving and compassionate. But as we keep one eye on that Christ, we must also have one eye on the risen and glorified Savior, the one who is coming again. We must see him as well and keep him focused in our mind's eye with 20-20 vision. So today, we're going to take the dangerous route for our epic view of Christ. We're going to go straight to the mountaintop experience, scaling the cliffs without ropes to get there, as it were. Friends, this is dangerous. This is terrifying. This is necessary. We must see Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, if you're not already there. Revelation chapter 1. And here we find the peak view, the most concise description of the glorified Savior. We will hone in on verses 12 to 18, but I'll begin reading at verse 9 and go through 20 for context. So look with me as I read. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos 
on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Unsuspectingly here, John is commissioned by Christ to write the revelation of the ages. He is being commissioned to write the things that are what he has just seen, the things that he's seen, excuse me, the things that are what's about to take place in chapters 2 and 3 of these letters and the things that are going to take place, the description of the end of time. If you're familiar with the context, John is on the island of Patmos at this time. He has been exiled on account of his preaching of the word, as it tells us in verse 9. He has been exiled and he is serving time on the island of Patmos. Think maybe of Alcatraz in the Bay of San Francisco. This island was off the shore, fairly near to Ephesus, and he was there by Roman decree, serving time. Something amazing, though, John was about 90 years old. He was an elderly man. He was the last of the disciples to be, still be alive. But though his personal problems were great, the problems in the church at that time were greater. The church was being persecuted like never before. Domitian's reign was terrorizing the church and people were in fear. People were losing their lives. People like John were being exiled. Many others were being put to death. And simultaneously, there were internal problems in the church. The church was full of sin and false teaching by this point. And there was much to, to pray for and to, and to worry about from John's perspective. Things were not going according to his plan. Last of the living apostles, stuck on Patmos where he can't preach the word, and churches are falling away. You can even tell the problems of the churches when you look at chapters 2 and 3 as Jesus addresses them. And out of, five, out of these seven churches, five of them, five of them were not being completely faithful to him. And it was in this scenario, while John remained faithful, that the Lord revealed himself in his glorified body. John had fought the fight and was still fighting, but he needed this view of Christ to strengthen him, to encourage, to encourage him, and to give him perseverance. Friends, we need it too. We need this view of Christ. And so, like scaling a cliff without ropes, we'll take this passage slowly and carefully, one grip followed by another, one foothold after another, moving forward through the text. 
And as we move along today, I want you to see that the right view of our glorified Savior compels us to conquer sin and find comfort in him. The right view of our glorified Savior compels us to conquer sin and find comfort in him. First, we'll see the description of Jesus, verses 10 to 16, and then we'll hear the declaration of Jesus. So first, the description of Jesus. And we will end up spending the bulk of our time in this place on the description of Jesus. And the first thing, as I was reading through our text a little bit ago, the first thing that we see, that we actually hear about, is the nature of, God, of Jesus' voice. It's a voice that's blaring like a trumpet, loud, piercing, shocking, deafening, and unexpected. It's like troops, hate, when they hasten to prepare for battle at the sound of a bugle, or like firefighters today scurry to prepare for a fire when they hear the alarm. Jesus' blast is like an alarming trumpet, awakening John to action. He was called by Christ to write. And what was he to write about? Anything that he saw. Whatever was put before his eyes, he was to write down. In fact, this command is given 11 times more throughout the book. Jesus keeps prodding him. God keeps prodding him. And even angels keep prodding him to write. Look at verse 19 of the chapter. We read that earlier. It says, Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. He's continually being told to write. The material is so important that God does not want John to miss it, nor does he want the churches to miss it. So he continually tells them to write. There is one point in chapter 10, verse 4, where he's told not to write. Some things are not for us to know. But the majority of what John was seeing... He was told to write. And then he was told to distribute it to the seven churches. Why was he told to distribute it? Because this vision was primarily for John, but ultimately it was for the church. It was for the church of that day, and it was for the church of today. It was recorded for all to see. Now we have these seven churches, and they're listed in verse 11. And why them? Why these churches? They're not necessarily the largest churches of the day. I mean, you'd think maybe Jerusalem or Antioch would, would be bigger and better. But these were the prominent postal cities, the prominent postal routes. Back then, they would, they would carry the mail around. And, and if you trace the, the cities, it starts with Ephesus, and it, it goes up and around Asia Minor, and it comes down. And every single one of these cities is on the prominent postal route. It would be as if today John were told to send the letter to the seven churches with the greatest internet or radio ministries, the greatest ministries that would be able to spread the word the greatest. This revelation was for the church, and the church of John's day is the same church as ours today. We are all one in Christ, and so this message given to John, given to the church, is as equally important for you and me as it was for those in Ephesus and as it was for those in Philadelphia being told what to write. John first had to see it. And as you saw in the text, it, the voice came from behind him. And so turning around, John first sees seven golden lampstands. Now you'd think, wh why mention these? Well, I can imagine with Christ in the middle, he's surrounded by the seven golden lampstands. And we're later told in verse 20 what these are. These are the seven churches. And, and he sees these first, and then he keeps turning, and behold, the Son of Man, Christ. He sees Christ. I want you to see Christ in the fullness of his glory, in the fullness of his majesty. This is God we are looking at. 
Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When you see Jesus, you see God. That's what Jesus always said to his disciples. I and the Father are one. If you knew me, you would know God. If you see me, you see God. Friends, no believer, no church can rise above its view of Christ. The greater your view of Christ, the greater you will treasure him. The greater you will drink from his fountain of life and the greater you will worship him. Your view of Christ will determine how you live this present life and it will also determine where you live the next life. Everything hinges on your view of Christ. I urge you, restore in your heart again a vision of your Savior and see him as he now is, exalted and glorified with the Father. So, let's see him as he truly is. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. This first description of Christ is all-encompassing, really, and the entire weight of what John saw as expressed in this description, a son of man. First, it shows that Jesus in his glorified body was a man in appearance. As John continues to describe him, he uses many human descriptions, such as Jesus having a head, hair, eyes, feet, hands, and mouth. There's no spirit that has these things. Jesus, even glorified, is human in appearance. But this name, Son of Man, tells us even more. It's actually a direct reference to his messianic title, one that he used for himself countlessly, many times over in his ministry uh, on earth. And it's a name that it draws from Daniel 7.13. I want to read Daniel 7.13 because it's an important passage. To understand Revelation, you have to understand the book of Daniel. And this verse, Daniel 7.13, says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is here named as the one who has been given dominion over all things and that all people of the world might serve him and his kingdom. His kingdom is everlasting, and thus his reign must also be everlasting. His authority goes from the end of the earth and for all time. He was given glory, says Daniel 7, 13, great glory, glory which can only come from God the Father. Isaiah tells us that God cannot give his glory to another, and yet he gives it to his son. Jesus must be God if God were to give him glory. Jesus, as we see here, just in this description of the Son of Man, is the permanent, glorified, reigning King. Nothing can usurp him, and everyone will serve him. He is the judge of his kingdom, and as his title also indicates, and the book of Revelation will detail later, he is the judge, and he will carry out judgment. Living Hope Bible Church, you are viewing now the Son of Man. Behold your King. Your king wears a long robe, complete with a golden sash across his chest. It says in verse 13, and this golden sa- this sash across the chest, this, this portrays his authority, 
in office. The common man might wear uh, his sash around his waist, like we wear a belt, to tuck in his outfit or his garment when he were to work. But the aristocrat, the, the person of authority, would wear it across his chest, indicating his high rank. They didn't do work with their hands. It's they wore their, their sash across the chest. And there have been uh, many commentators who, who look at this and see that this sash must be the priestly garb of Jesus because it, it harkens back a little bit to the garb found in Leviticus of the priests. But while there, while there, there are some, some connections there, I, I would present to you that this is not the, the garb of a high priest that he's wearing, but the garb of a judge. And the reason for that is, one, the context. In our context, we see um, no other reference, reference to Jesus' as high priest, though we know he is. We see him here as the judge, as it'll be made even more clear in just a moment. But secondly, and a more compelling reason why this is, is not the high priest garb, but the garb of a man of authority, uh, like a judge, is that angels are described as wearing this exact same outfit. Uh, in Daniel 10, verse 5, there's a warrior angel who comes and is wearing the same outfit of white with a gold sash. And later in Revelation 15, 6, we find seven prominent angels who were to be involved in judging the earth wearing a white outfit with a golden sash. Now, clearly, they're not the high priests. And so, I'd, so I, I think this is better to take this as the garments of a judge. The rest of the book of Revelation details Jesus as a judge and these clothes are what signifies that. They show him as a dignified man, high in importance. And so, simply from his apparel, apparel, we see Jesus as a judge. That does fit perfectly with Paul's understanding of Jesus Christ as he comes back in 1730 and 31. Paul, commands, or Paul tells us that God commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is Jesus. He's coming to judge. In verse 14, our description of the judging Lord continues as we, as we move along. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. This is the whitest of whites. Like, like the white of wool, the, the white of snow is exactly as it describes it. You can't picture anything more white than a perfectly carpeted field of snow. In Daniel 7, the same area, same passage we read from earlier, we also in that chapter receive a description of God the Father. He's called there the Ancient of Days and he has bright white hair as well. White as snow, white like pure wool, it says. This feature of the Father is also a feature of the Son. Though distinct, they are one, and they also match in appearance as well. So this, this white hair surely denotes purity. Of course, it denotes the purity of God and his, and his holiness. But many commentators also point out that it denotes and it depicts Christ's eternality. Think of age and how our, for, for men, our hair goes from dark to white. Um, like the Father, Jesus has lived forever and will live forever. With such a life comes perfect wisdom. Jesus is perfect in his knowledge of mankind and their hearts, and this crown of white depicts that we owe him unreserved respect. Unreserved respect. Friends, do you respect Jesus as he deserves? Do you see him as equal to God the Father and one with him? Revere the Son, lest you reject him as God. John continues in this amazing description, next with the eyes. 
the eyes like a flame of fire. And this description pictures Jesus' penetrating gaze, searching the hearts of mankind like, like laser beams coming out of his eye sockets, to quote Steve Lawson. It's an intense vision portraying supernatural intelligence. And I, I just think to one verse in Mark, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, when, when uh, it says, Jesus looked around at them, that'd be the Pharisees, Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. In this situation, the Pharisees had not yet said a word. They were just standing there, standing there looking at the, at the paralyzed man. And, and, they were, and Jesus was just grieved by looking into their heart. He saw what was inside. They didn't have to act. He knew what was there. He gazed into their heart and saw it. And friends, Jesus looks into your heart as well. He knows your motives. He knows why you do what you do. Look at the I know statements here in, chapter, in Revelation 2 and 3. Just gaze over with me. Look at first at uh, 2.19, Revelation 2.19. He says to the church in Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In chapter 3, 1, the second part of that verse, Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 3.15, he says it again. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. They were lukewarm instead. Jesus knows. He sees your faithfulness to his word. He sees your troubles and he knows your heart when nobody else ever will. When nobody else will ever see. And on top of that, Jesus knows your deeds too. He doesn't just know what's inside. He knows what you do. He knows the good and the bad. Just like each of these letters to the churches, Jesus sees what you do in public or in private. And for the wrong that you do, he is ready to judge. He would have you repent and return to doing good. Living hope, Jesus is searching mankind for holiness. He's looking for your holiness. He's looking for holiness in our elders. He's looking for holiness in our leaders, in our Sunday school teachers, in our seniors. He's looking for holiness in our youth. He is looking for holiness, and he's looking at you. 1 Peter 4.17 says that it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It takes place first with us. It takes place first with us. And this is seen most readily in verse 15, where it continues, with his feet were like burnished bronze. Now, at first this is confusing and it takes some, some curious study, but what, what, what can be mined from this is that this is a picture of purity, burning away in the refiner's fire all things evil. These feet depict Christ's righteous judgment against all sin, especially the sin in the church. He's most concerned about sin within his church. He wants to focus on the weeds of his garden and not that of his neighbors. In the last day, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 3, each Christian's work will be revealed, whether gold or silver or whether wood or straw. These feet are hot and smoldering, ready to set aflame your pathetic works. Listen to Revelation 2.23, where he says to one of the churches, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Friends, you are a part of his church. Know therefore that as he who searches heart and mind, and he will give to you as your works deserve. Is this not a compelling reason to conquer sin? 
This sight of our glorified Savior should compel you to conquer sin, to remove it from your life, to put it off, because Christ is coming to judge the church. It starts with us. Christ will have the final say on your life. All that matters is that you please him. That's all you need. Please Christ. Well, John breaks up the physical description of Jesus and moves on to speak now about his voice again. This voice that first came like a trumpet in the dark, breaking the silence, will now, in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 2 and 3, cascade around John like a pounding waterfall, drenching him in this voice. This is a voice to drown out all other voices. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with complete authority. He's all we need to hear. When, When a judge passes a sentence in court, his decision is final. It's authoritative. And this loud voice of our judge Jesus roars over any other noise, and he gives out authoritative decisions. By his voice, he created the universe, and with his voice, he calmed the sea. And also with his voice, he will proclaim judgment or blessing upon the church. It carries weight. carries authority. And once you hear Jesus' voice, no other voice matters. John moves on from the voice and goes back to his body. And we see in verse 16 that in his right hand are seven stars. And verse 20 explains what these are to us. And it tells us these, these seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. There's a couple ways to take this understanding. And we won't go deeply into it. But, but many, including myself, see, this, see these uh, angels as the messengers of the churches. The literal word in Greek is messenger. And at times it can be translated as angel. And other times it can just be a simple messenger. And, and what we have here, I believe, is the messengers or the, the preaching or the teaching uh, leaders, the preaching or teaching pastors of the churches. And so in God's right hand are the messengers, the pastors of these seven churches. And his holding them in his hands displays his possession of them and his control over them. These angels or these messengers, these pastors, are Jesus's to guide and direct. And he will use them according to his will and plan. With his hand, he will uphold them strengthen them, and give them the messages that they are to speak. It's this hand that, tell, that shows us that Jesus is under control. He's under control in these churches. And that truly is comforting in the midst of this, this, this difficult description of this blinding, really, this blinded description of Christ. We do see a hint of the comfort of Christ as he holds his pastors and holds his churches in his hand to control them and to to, make, to, to only let happen to them what he deems sovereign. John is almost finished now with his description of Christ and he moves on to Christ's mouth from which protrudes a sharp two-edged sword. Middle of verse 16. This is the judicial sword. It's his surgical instrument to remove the unbelieving sinners from his body, the church. Friends, as it's been said already, Christ demands repentance in the churches in these seven messages in chapter 2 and 3. And there are some consequences if they do not repent. He says to one church, I will remove your lampstand from its place. To another, I will throw you into great tribulation. And to one more, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against the disobedient with the sword of my mouth. This sword here. This is the judicial authority of Christ And as it says here, it comes out of his mouth. This sword is the physical manifestation of his voice. 
With his voice, he speaks the judgment, and with his, the sword of his mouth, he makes that judgment happen. With the force of a warrior, Jesus will pass judgment and sentence on all the disobedient. Begins in the church, but it does not end there. This judgment continues to the world around us. And later on in, in Revelation 19, go ahead and turn over there, just a few pages. Revelation chapter 19, in verse 11, we see Christ coming again as the reigning king. And in 19 verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Skip down to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This sword is, is, is Jesus' judgment coming on all people. And finally, back in Revelation 1, we come to the face like a sun shining in full strength. This final description shows Jesus' radiant glory, too bright to behold. And this picture sums up all the other pictures. It's the image of the glorified Christ, perfect purity, perfectly white, so bright that one cannot look at it. His face is the outshining of his full character, perfectly glorious in every way. And taking in this face was John's final straw. It was it. It was like the knockout blow. The totality of Jesus' being, his all-knowing power, his penetrating gaze, his authoritative voice, his righteous judgment, these were almost too much for John to take in. But now his face, the very face of God, which should cause all men to fall down dead, was a knockout blow to John. He fell down. Like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like others in God's presence, he fainted. He fell down dead. What happens when you look at the sun in the sky? What happens when you look at the sun? Your eyes hurt. You're stung by its brightness, and you must turn your face away. But when you look at the Son of God, what happens? Your soul hurts stung by his bright glory as you recognize how despicable you truly are before him. With all your sins, you cannot look at him. You must fall at his feet. Have you fallen at Christ's feet? Have you fallen at Christ's feet? Have you seen your sin for what it is, a gross affront to a most holy, perfect, righteous God? No other response is correct. For God is holy and man cannot behold him. As Spurgeon has, says, has said, it is better to be dead at the feet of Jesus than alive anywhere else. Amen to that. It is better to be dead at the feet of Jesus than alive anywhere else. This view of Christ that we have seen compels us to conquer sin daily. How gross is our sin to a holy God? He is coming to judge the world on account of sin. How can we possibly still live in it? How can we possibly still live in our sin? But friends, Christ is also compassionate and we must fix our eyes again on his compassionate person. We need to have one eye at all times on the judge Christ, but another eye on the compassionate Christ who loves us and cares for us. He does not want for us to reject him. If, if we fall at his feet, he will give us eternal life. 
If you fall at his feet, he will forgive you of your sins, casting them away, and he will give you his perfect righteousness. Eternal life is his to give, and he now displays this compassion to John in this declaration. John, the repentant sinner, now gets a declaration from Jesus. That's point two, the declaration of Jesus. He says to him in verse 17, after John has fallen down as the dead, he says in verse 17, fear not. John, a man completely aware of his sinfulness, knows he cannot stand before God. He falls down before him. He's fallen down in shame because of his wretchedness as though dead, just like Isaiah and Ezekiel. They fall down. They cannot look at God. And yet Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and touches him. He puts his right hand on him, it says. He laid his right hand on me. That was so important to John. On the theological side, it shows us that Jesus is not just a spirit, but he's actually physically there. But more importantly, the touch is a touch of compassion. When we need compassion, It is common for someone to lay a hand on our shoulder or to put an arm around us and to comfort us. Christ here lays his hand on John's shoulder to comfort him and remind him and let him know, John, you will not die. You will not die for seeing me. But why not? Why should any sinner not die at the sight of this most perfect and holy God? Why can John go through this without dying? Why can we see Christ today in this scripture as it's been recorded for us and not die? Because John is a forgiven man. John is forgiven. That is why he can see Jesus face to face and not be struck down. Though present in John's mind, in Jesus' mind, his sins have been wiped wiped away. Christ's perfect righteousness has been placed upon him and the unrighteousness of John was placed on Jesus at the cross. Remember, John was there. John was there at the cross. He was the only disciple to see Jesus die. The rest fled away, but John was there to watch him die. He heard Jesus say, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He was there when it was said, It is finished. John saw him die. And that act, that act on the cross, was what frees John from certain death here. As Christ's righteousness imputed to him through his death and resurrection was put on John, and John's unrighteousness was put on Christ at the cross. And because of this, Jesus can say to John, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the death, the keys, excuse me, I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus being God has control of eternal life and he decides the fate of every individual. He has the keys of death and Hades. That means he decides who goes where on what happens to us in eternal life. And how is this? How is it that Jesus gets to decide? Because Jesus Christ has conquered death. He has conquered it. He has risen from the dead. Friends, this is absolutely essential to our salvation, to our eternal life. There is no gospel without the resurrection. There is no good news if Jesus did not rise, if he did not come from the dead. We must remember when we consider Christ's death, that his resurrection is just as important to giving us freedom from our sins, to giving us new life. It is the resurrection in which we hope for that eternal life in Christ. We need to understand the resurrection as essential to the gospel. In fact, Romans 10.9, a verse many of us know well and have memorized, it, 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 many of us recognize it to be the shortest and most concise 
um, description of what we must do to be saved. And it says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus emphasizes this in our text. He says to John, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Do you see the good news there? Do you see the good news he's sharing to John with John? Reminding him, reminding him of the hope of the Christian. Friends, is your hope of eternal life placed in the resurrection of the dead, placed in Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, and yours as well? Or do you live as a Sadducee, essentially denying the resurrection as you, as you live for wealth and for advancement in this life instead of the next? You know, the Corinthian church, they, there were people in the Corinthian church of Paul's day who, who did not hold to the resurrection. They rejected it. And Paul rebuked them in, 1 Corinthians, in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. And he, he, he tells them, he gives them an argument, and this is so crucial. I must read it. 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Drops the mic, so to speak. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And that's the point. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But the reverse of that is also true. If Christ has been raised, your faith is not futile and you are not still in your sins. Friends, Christ has been raised and therefore we are freed from our sins. The imputation of Christ's righteousness rings out loud and clear because of his resurrection, because of his coming to life. John the apostle would have fully understood this and so when Jesus comes and puts a hand on him and tells him, fear not, I am the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, what comfort this would have been. Let this be comforting to you as well, knowing that if you have put your life and put your faith and trust in Christ, turning from your sin, that you too will not be condemned when you see the Savior. The judging Lord that John saw had not come to destroy him. Though his soul was shaken under the weight of the knowledge of his own sin, John was not struck dead. Jesus was there to comfort him. When we first enter into Christ's presence, we don't know what it'll be like, but we might, I very well suspect that we will tremble in his presence. <clears throat> but we will not tremble for eternity. If you are his child, you will quickly have those fears wiped away as he lays his hand on you and compassionately welcomes you. There is much comfort to be found in the right view of our Savior. Do you feel it? Have you experienced that comfort? Have you recognized that comfort for yourself as you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead? Jesus will first judge each human being according to whether he has believed in him or not. To those who have given their life to Jesus, who have repented of their sins, and who have believed by faith, with faith in his death and resurrection, he will say, like he said to John, fear not. If this is you today, you have no reason to fear. 
You can come to this view of Christ today with joy and wonder and amazement, beholding him as judge and him as compassionate and saving Lord. You can climb the cliff without ropes. You are safe. Fear not. But if that does not describe you, if you are not living your life for Jesus Christ, if you are still living in your sins, have not repented of them and given your life to him, you have every reason to fear. You must fear. You have seen a portrait of God today and he has not struck you down. Even that is grace. There will come a day when all of us die. You too will die. You will face judgment. You will see Jesus as judge. He has the keys of death in Hades. He has the keys of eternal life. And if you have not put your faith in this righteous judge, you do not want to face him like that. You need to surrender yourself to him. Cry out to him for mercy and ask to be a part of his people that have no reason to fear. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I urge you to do that today if you have never put your faith in him. For those of us who have, what comfort and what a compelling reason to put off sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us this vision of your glorified son, for, for sending him to John on Patmos to, to, to give the book of Revelation so we might know what comes in the future. But not only that, just for these, these short verses that reveal who you are, Jesus, who rev- that reveal your person. God, we thank you for it. Help us to live in light of it. Thank you for giving us your righteousness, this perfect holiness that gives you the right to judge the world is also the holiness that you have given to your children, God. And we thank you so much for it. We, we weep at the sin that sent Christ to the cross. And God, we thank you for the righteousness that you've sent us, knowing that it is only by grace that we have received it. God, for those here today who, are, who know you but are in sin, God, compel them to, to defeat the sin. For those who are weak today and in need of comfort from you, weighed down by the, an overbearing vision of their sin, Lord, may you comfort them to know that their eternal life will not be one of judgment, but one spent with you, our gracious, wonderful God. God, and if there are any here today who do not know you, work in their heart, convict them of sin, turn them to your Son. In his precious name we pray. Amen.